Chapter 2 The Most Cunning Bounty Hunter Beedy sat in her usual corner in their gang's upstairs room, her deep-set almond eyes peering intently from under her short-cut brown hair. She was whittling away at a small wooden figurine with a fine woodcutter's knife, unconcerned with whatever plans were being brewed. Shiv sat by the small bookshelf, with its five shelves of books that only he ever added to, and only he ever read, puzzling over some of the poetry in Gravelin's famous Songs of the Sea Folk. Sutha was keeping guard out back, behind the bar, where the five Blackforge crewmen were bound and gagged in a hut used almost exclusively for their bounty-hunting endeavours. Plan-making and plotting were, as usual, left to Zack, Tira, and Deacon. The trio huddled over a newly drawn parchment map of the Vulture Coast, which Zack had stolen from a naval captain's private quarters in Seahaven. Good maps were rare to come by and so prohibitively expensive that plenty of people would live and die without ever seeing one. Deacon could not help but stare at the details, which included not only the coast with its small islands and rocky outcrops, but much of Galwyn itself, and several leagues of its bordering states to match. Galwyn was one of the nine states that made up the Concordant, and rested on the northwestern coast of the continent. It was bordered on the north and west by the ocean opening into the mistwood mountains of Ricken on its eastern side. Its southeastern border was hemmed by the Kingswood, which separated it from the royal state of Belmar, along the lines of the Nikali River. In the south, following the course of the Nikali, it opened into the vast green plains and rolling hills of Narania, marked on the map with small drawings of cattle and wheat. Golwyn was most famous for its royal academy, where scholars and scholarks were taught. This was what most people thought of when they imagined Gorwin, with its high towers and storied gardens, sitting picturesque by the sea in the state's capital, Vinchat. The academy was only two hundred years old, though, and along the coast, at least, there was a very different Gorwin. This was the Gorwin that had been the home of such famous pirates and brigands as Mareni the Dread, Corsavo and his Black Adders and countless others whose stories were still told over spilt ale in the oldest, dirtiest parts of town. Nowhere in Galwyn was the Sunderbelly more crystallized than in Perla's port, which the map indicated only with a black spot and a name far on the southern end of the state's coast. According to an entirely unsubstantiated legend, the grimy port city was named after a prostitute so famous that men would ride in from other continents and sell their ships for a night with her. Every brothel in the city tried to convince its visitors that it was where she had worked, and crude sketches of her, often very different, appeared in most of the inns and pubs. It was a sprawling town that never slept and never stopped moving, far enough away from any of the major cities to avoid the guards and peacekeepers, and deep enough into the oft-pirated Vulture Coast to be free of the Royal Navy. It was a hub for all manner of criminal activity. Here, People lived whatever lives they could carve out for themselves or pry from the hands of another. Tira interrupted Deacon's reflections. It must be among these small islands, she said, and circled an area with her finger carefully. Zack frowned, chewing on one side of his lip and looking down at the map from under his dark blue cap. We've all been through those waters once or twice. Ever seen something you'd call White Spire? Not exactly. 
Deacon agreed. There is a veritable ensemble of abandoned buildings, crumbling towers, and ancient forts no longer in use, though. White Spire could be a codename of some type. It must be somewhere in that area, for that one guy's statement to make sense. This is the closest point between the Vulture Coast and the islands of Cardania, and the only place I'd say that you couldn't avoid one without steering right into the other. Beady looked up casually. Should we, uh, interrogate them or something? Try and find out where exactly? When the three all gave her a concerned look, she added, Nothing permanent. Just a broken finger or, or a smashed nail. A little excitement creeped into her voice. We don't all share your proclivity for violence, Beady, Deacon answered. And as I've told you a dozen times before, we can't collect their bounties if there's any evidence of torture. I don't make the rules, but I do try to make the shill. She frowned and went back to her carving. Shiv looked at her over his book. A verse for you, my love. In body curves, like lust-bent waves, and skin so fair as sea-foam, my lover, will you ever cut that out? Beady groaned, not looking up. And my skin is as tan as wood. Tira chuckled. She prefers the soft folds of a young sail to the hardwood of the mast. You know that. She winked at Beady, then suggestively licked her lips. Beady returned the gesture with a blown kiss. Shiv sighed and returned his dark eyes to his reading, mumbling something to himself about having poor taste. He was a tall, slender man, with hair as black as Deacon's, though he kept it cut shorter. He was lighter skinned than the other, but still the rich tan that all Parthians had, unlike Beady whose olive skin was more the product of sun. As they both enjoyed fine clothes where they could, Deacon and Shiv could nearly be mistaken for one another at a distance, and sometimes, indeed, were. Of the six in their little crew, no two were from the same place. Tira, blonde-haired and fair of skin when she stayed out of the sun for a bit, was the very image of a Belmaran woman. Zack, always simply dressed, and wearing the traditional blue cap on his head to match his eyes and cover his curly brown hair, was from the state of Rickon. Shiv was from Parthad, the southeasternmost state of the Nine, which bordered the impassable desert called the Shine. Bidi was from the warrior stock of Helmand, homeland of the famous warriors known as Glavs, where women stood as tall and strong as men. Sutha was from the southern, swampy state of Solmar. Only Deacon was from outside the Concordant, but he never quite revealed from where, dodging questions about it whenever asked, and assuring his companions that one's past was a poor thing to waste on the truth. Like most who made their living on the Galwini coastline, none of them were from Galwin. There was a knock on the door. Come in, Deacon invited, and a teenage boy entered, dressed in the worn clothes of a dark hand and smelling vaguely of fish. Lou, what can we do for you? It's Suther sent me up. Says you to come down if you can. Has something to show you. He answered. Like most of the labor there, he spoke in crude low commons. He and Deacon could hardly understand one another's speech most of the time, but he was a good boy, and knew when to keep his mouth shut when sent on errands and chores. Deacon and Suther used him for menial tasks when available, and he was their ears at the docks. Deacon nodded. I was needing to have a word with our... guests, anyways. 
I'll be right there. With a quick nod himself, Lou was back out the door, his footsteps echoing as he made his way. Good kid him, Zack said, as he almost always did when Lou came and went. I'll be right back, Deacon assured them, then left down the stairs himself. They were old, steep stairs that zigzagged down a single floor until they ended in the barroom. The bar had served food once, before Deacon bought it, but that brought entirely too many people around, and he hated the various smells wafting up to their room at the top. Now they sold on the alcohol and smoke leaf, and had become a favorite for the local workers who lived close enough to safely stumble their way home at night. He had renamed it the Strongwater Bar and Smoke, after Strongwater Cove a little ways north of the town, and the tendency for locals to refer to liquor as especially strong water. Deacon regarded the barkeeper as he paced by, a middle-aged Rakane man named Ludric who came with the place when he had bought it. Did we get that delivery of the cured smoke leaf, the one steeped with the maple flavor? Ludric had a long rosewood pipe sticking out from one side of his mouth, which let loose plumes of curling smoke that snaked past his ice-blue eyes and around the brim of his blue cap. Salty Dog was laying quietly on the floor a few paces away from him, wagging his tail when he saw Deacon. It came the day afore last, he answered in a deep voice. Gone already. A gentleman with an exquisite beard smoked it all. He stroked his long, exquisite brown beard. Deacon rolled his eyes. Did you at least pay for it? It's not cheap, you know. Paid for it, and already ordered another, larger delivery, which I promised to only smoke half of. He grinned. With a sigh, Deacon rounded the bar table, reached down to pat Salty Dog on his head, and then made his way out a door behind and into a walled patch of yard. Suther was there, also enjoying a smoke, resting against the old pine door of the shed. When he saw Deacon, he produced a tightly folded parchment, weathered-looking and frayed lightly along its edges, and held it up in front of him. Don't tell me you've finally learned your letters, Deacon grinned. One side of the broad, bold man's mouth turned down in a frown. I've told you a hundred times. I can read and write, you ass. He snatched the paper from his friend, and slowly unfolded it, making sure not to tear anything. It was on the dark-haired one. He told me where to cut his belt to pull it from. Had it stashed nicely in there, he did. Suther explained. The dark-haired one? Nori, was it? Norn, Suther said, nursing his pipe. Ah, yes, Norn. Had a look at it yet? He shook his head. Paper's always got some kind of intrigue with it. That's your thing, not mine. Deacon finished opening it. Always happy for a spot of intrigue. As he read it, his face first had surprise, then confusion, then furrowed to show concern before returning to surprise. Sutha, could you fetch him out for me? I think we need to have a conversation with our friend in there. Without a word, Sutha opened the door behind him and slid into the darkness within. A few muffled protests rang out as always happened when that door opened, and a moment later he reappeared, carrying Norn in his right hand as though the man were a bound bale of hay. With a kick, the door behind him closed once more, and Suther set the tied man down in the dirt between them. 
I'll set him upright. Come on. I'm not intending to lay down to speak with the man, Deacon instructed. And Suther did as he was told, and then unbound the gag that was keeping him from speaking. Nor did the lip-wetting and jaw-stretching that everyone did when a gag was taken out of their mouths after a while. The Prince of Southlandia, he said with obvious annoyance. Deacon smiled and held his hands wide. I'm not the idiot who believed it. He bent over and held the folded note up in front of Norn's face. Is this real? Would be a damn dangerous thing to have on me if it wasn't, Norn answered. Deacon noticed that his low commons was gone now, and he spoke like a more educated man. Deacon considered that quietly for a moment, pressing a curled finger against his bottom lip and examining the man thoughtfully. The letter was a writ of authority, penned in the hand of the royal spymaster, Marston Serpentus, and sealed with his signet, though Deacon wagered not many would have recognized it. It instructed that in the event of apprehension by authorities, the bearer of that letter was to be released immediately, and whatever fines or dues he might owe resulting from his activity should be sent to the office of registries in Belmaris. Any interference with him, according to the letter, would result in criminal charges. Norn had told the truth, he realized. If any of his Blackforge friends ever saw that letter, they would likely kill him on the spot. Though not spelled in so many words, it named Norn as a spy working for Serpentus. What does that old man Serpentus want with the Blackforge? Deacon asked. How is that your business? Norn said dismissively. Just let me go. You read the letter. There'll be problems if you don't. Deacon crouched on his haunches to be face level with the kneeling, tied man. That's where you've made a slight miscalculation, friend. We're bounty hunters. We sell criminals to the just account for sure. But we don't work for them. Serpentus has no strings over us. And if you were to disappear entirely, I imagine he would replace you as easily as replacing a spent candle. Norn's face made it obvious he didn't like that very much. Then hand it back, so I can give it to whoever you turn us over to. You'll get your bounty, and I'll be freed. Win-win. Deacon barked a laugh. You really are dumb. Win-win. My friend, do you know what this letter would be worth to the right people? Norn squirmed against his ropes, grunting. But Deacon continued. It never names you. It just says, whoever bears this letter, this note is a key to every locked jail in the Concordant. Any criminal could be all but guaranteed a smooth release if they were ever captured. For as intelligent and cunning as every whisper about Serpentus suggests he is, he seems to have lacked the street knowledge to understand exactly what he was sending out into the world with this. No, no, no. I can't simply give this back to you. This is mine now, and for the right price. Later, maybe it will be someone else's. Or maybe I could give it back to you. Yes, I suppose I could. Sutha grinned at the spectacle of Norn's fear. Though he didn't have the mind for strategies and plots himself, he knew the look Deacon wore when he had trapped his prey. Whatever he intended, Norn was at his absolute mercy now and the fear in his eyes showed he knew it. What do you want? He pushed out through gritted teeth. 
not even looking up at his captors. Well, for starters, I believe you still haven't answered my first question. Why is Serpentis sending a man into the Black Forge? I'm assuming they have something to do with this, unless he hired you precisely because you're in the Black Forge, Deacon said levelly. Norn shook his head and let his shoulders down, accepting that he had to do whatever they asked if he ever wanted that letter back, a letter that had already saved him twice before. I don't know all of it. I only ever met Serpentis the one time. He sends messengers, people who find me and give me a few quick words of instruction. But that's all. Well, what you do know of it, then, Deacon encouraged. Don't be shy. Norn's eyes shifted around a little, as though he were filtering what to say and what not to into tidy little camps within his mind. There's a man they call the chemist, he started. Serpentus wants him, alive if possible, but dead if not. He works for the Black Forge. But so far I haven't found a person who could name him or point a finger if they saw the man. I'm leaning on the idea that it might be Jaren himself, but I just don't know enough yet to be certain. Makes sense to me, Sutha put in. Deacon raised an eyebrow, looking from Norn to Sutha. This is why it's no real compliment that people call me the most cunning bounty hunter this side of the Black Mountains. He thought he might have heard Sutha grunt under his voice that no one called him that, but he continued. No, no, no. Chemistry is a very rare skill, and those few who can grasp it typically get sent to work as royal chemists in the academy, or even in Balmaris itself. He's called the chemist, you say. Why? What is he doing for them? Have you heard about drops? Or has it not made its way here yet? Norn asked. Drops. Can't say I have. Deacon answered, and when he looked at Sutha, the strong man shook his bald head. It's a drug that the Black Forge is moving, mostly in port towns south of here, but it'll be all over the coast soon. It's a new drug. It's highly addictive, and only the Black Forge makes it. I heard Captain Tarv say once that he's made more shill moving drops in two months than he's made doing anything else for the Black Forge in his many years. Norn told them. A drug. Deacon seemed to chew on the word before taking a seat on a stump next to Sutha and resting his chin on steepled fingers. The word drug had been all but extinguished from the common tongue. Most people, if they knew the word at all, only knew it from having heard the law that drugs are prohibited, and that certain plants, plants no one ever saw any more, were illegal to possess. Every now and then, in Perla's port at least, you might hear about a drug that does this or that, and of someone selling it. The last person to try doing so, a sickly-looking courser selling a powder he promised would change the way you saw the world, was chased out of town. The confessors of the just account usually gave Perla's port a wide berth, but rumors of drugs would bring them, and that wouldn't be good for anyone. There were a few herbs Deacon himself traded in for a good profit that weren't precisely illegal, but like many things he did, cut very near to being so. If a new drug spread, and word of it spread, confessors would come sniffing. What do these drops do exactly? Deacon asked. Norn's eyes went distant for a moment, 
like he was staring at something he had once seen. His voice was low and had a subtle disgust in it. At first, well, at first they just make you feel more alive. You feel your blood pumping, your heart beating in your ears. If you take it at night, you won't sleep the whole night through. It makes you want to get up and run. I've seen fishermen take to their docked boats in the mid of night and refasten all their lines, just to have something to do with themselves. I've heard it said, too, that it gives men the vigor of a bull, such that the night ladies charge double for the time it took. That doesn't sound too bad, Suther began, but Deacon frowned at him, and Norn continued as though he hadn't heard him. For the first week or two, it seems like a magical pill from the stories. You're stronger, you work harder, you make love longer. Then the headaches come, and you realize only the drops make it go away. They get so bad you can't sleep. But when you take the drops to cure the headache, now you can't sleep anyways. Another two or three weeks of it and the madness starts to set in. Men strangle their lovers to death, spend all night going tavern to tavern picking fights, or else try to tear down a building with their bare hands until their fingernails are all gone, and their fingers are a mangled mess. If someone ties them down and tries to make them let the stuff go, they have convulsions and fits so bad that half the time it kills them. If no one makes the effort, they'll eventually kill themselves, and probably take someone with them. Deacon sat quietly for a long while after that. Such a drug would bring the confessors to the southern coast in full force, and then everything he had built in the last two years would be burned down. The sailors, fishermen, and portsmen that all seaside towns relied on for their livelihoods would stop coming as dead bodies and murders piled up. His mind rummaged through all the information from every angle it could, and quickly. Jaren, the Black Forge, the chemist, the spymaster and his interests, the bounties, the money, the drug, his own crew and their respective talents. And then something clicked into place. A sly grin cut one side of Deacon's face. More shill in two months than in two years, you say? Norn nodded agreement, and Suther joined in Deacon's smile. Got an idea, boss. Deacon turned the folded note over in his hands. Better. I've got a plan.